Studios of WORQ in Wisconsin. This is the Stand Up for the Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up for the Truth. Welcome to Stand Up for the Truth for June the 9th. It's Friday, everybody, although you probably already know that. My name is Mary Danielson. I'm your host today. I really do hope that these podcasts challenge and encourage you, and to that end, we're going to continue our dot connecting today through some drive-by history and see where it takes us. Now, if you missed my last podcast with some quite a few rabbit trails, you can go to StandForTheTruth.com and listen to the June 1st episode entitled The Age of Acceleration. As a matter of fact, uh, visit StandForTheTruth.com and sign up for our weekly podcast digest via your email inbox. On the top menu bar, click the subscribe link. Enter your first name and email address. Feedback is also encouraged, encouraged at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Let's open in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we know you as a God who is not only outside of time, uh, but you show your servants what will take place ahead of time. And this is too wonderful for us. We're so grateful. And uh, we ask for wisdom and discernment and grace in these problematic days, Lord, and and we just thank you ahead of time for all your provision, all your love, all your mercy in our lives, and we just love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, (laughs) maybe you were never much of a history buff. Maybe years of it in school left you wondering why you should care, but if you're a believer, you now have an entirely different reason to care because the Bible is filled with what I call the history of the future, and we can really get excited about the details that God thinks are important. So let's dig in today, and we're going to pull on some really different threads, and it's all going to make sense by the time we wrap it up here, and it might just give you new eyes to view some prophecy packages, uh, passages. In uh, 1948, as Europe was emerging from two devastating wars, they quickly found themselves faced with two urgent security threats, possible German rearmament, and secondly, the start of the Cold War. And so in response to uh, immediate defense and economic needs on March 17, 1948, uh, the Brussels Treaty was signed, creating a European common market consisting of Belgium, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and the UK, commonly called Benelux. Remember that name. On May 7th of that year, only about six weeks later, Winston Churchill opened the first session of the European Congress at The Hague in the Netherlands, laying the course for the economic and political integration of Europe. Now, did he know that nearly 2,600 years prior, the prophet Daniel had laid out in detail the history of the world's great empires before they ever existed, ending with the vision of a future unified and powerful Europe that would rise out of the ashes of the old Roman Empire and be the final global power before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Now, most everyone is um, who is listening here today is familiar with the major events of World War II and the horrifying reign of Adolf Hitler. We probably know more about all that than we wish we did. I've often asked myself how in the world that one man got so powerful, and of course, I believe the answer is largely spiritual, but he believed he was ruling over something called the Third Reich. And you may ask yourself, what about the First and Second Reich? Was there such an era? And that's a reasonable question. So we're going to talk about Europe today, and you might think, well, 
we never hear about Europe. Why would we care about what's going on in Europe? Oh, we, we need to care. There's an awful lot going on behind the scenes that we may not know about. So if you're a student of prophecy, you know the topic is a lot larger than the book of Revelation. We have Daniel, Ezekiel, the New Testament, and all have important verses that add to the picture. In Daniel chapter 2, for instance, we read about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream of a large metallic man symbolizing four successive kingdoms yet to come. And it's one of the most vivid prophecies in the Bible. It's one of my favorites. It is history. Uh, the image of his uh, in his dream had a head of gold. Now that represents him, Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom of Babylon. It had chest and arms of silver. That represents the Medo-Persian Empire. It had belly, a belly and thighs of brass, that representing Greece. And finally, the Roman Empire, represented by legs of iron and toes of iron and clay. Now, iron represents brutality and oppression. And we know that because Daniel 2.40 says, in fact, that iron subdues all things and it will crush and break all others. The Roman Empire is the it there. And verse 44 says that in the days of these kings, hmm, the kings being the ten toes of the image, the God of heaven will set up his everlasting kingdom. That not only sounds really straightforward, but that's exciting because it's telling us that there is a specific time that, that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. I get excited about that. Why these kingdoms? Okay, that's my first question. Weren't there other kingdoms and dynasties before King Neb? What about the Sumerians? What about the Egyptians, the Chinese and their dynasties? Well, God is telling us here which ones are important, I think, uh, to his plans leading up to the return of Jesus. And so we need to pay attention. And again, I share all this as historical background so that when you do sit under teaching about these things or study it for yourself, it'll hopefully enhance what you're hearing. Uh, also note that each successive metal in this image is weaker. It's less valuable than the previous. You have gold, then silver, then brass, and then iron. And I'm thinking, and maybe you're thinking this too, it wouldn't take much to topple that statue at all, which is certainly true of the rule of mankind, right? Um, we all know it's going to come crashing down eventually, just, and Daniel says, like so much dust and chaff. So it's all going to come to an end. So each of these kingdoms did successively conquer the previous one. And today, we're going to focus on those legs of fe legs and feet, which signify a divided Roman kingdom, and a future repositioning of that kingdom in the last of the last days, out of which will come the one the Bible calls the Antichrist. Now, I've heard and read uh, about all the uh, Islamic Antichrist, Antichrist reasonings. And I actually have yet to hear anything persuasive on that front, but still, more and more, these teachings are spreading and that the final world empire will not be centered in Europe. And I, I'm hoping today that my research here will speak for itself, and the Bible tells us the finally, final earthly kingdom is represented by iron. Um, so the question that I would ask is, does today's Europe hold any interest for students of the Scripture? Because if it doesn't, then Daniel 2 isn't really very special, is it? but it has very special prophecies in it. So you decide if Daniel 2 is really the history of the future. In 753 BC, Rome as a city was founded, and it had its first king. Starting out as a monarchy, Rome would have seven kings total who reigned right up to 535 BC. For various reasons, that king thing did not go over real well with the people. So for the next 500 years, the empire was called a republic, and it was ruled by various political 
uh, figureheads, which with the occasional dictator thrown in um, during times of upheaval. Now, the Romans were the first to use weaponry made of iron. A Greek philosopher of the day said, and he should know, whoever has the iron gets the gold, which is both philosophical and really prophetic for that particular Greek, because in 146 BC, Greece fell to Rome. Then starting in 29 BC, there was a succession of seven emperors who ruled in the time of Christ right on through the time of the Apostle John when he was given the book of Revelation, okay? So for a lot of us, that's where our knowledge of this empire ends. But following the emperors, we enter the time of the division of the empire into east and west, about 285 AD, and that's the two legs of that image. Uh, the western half was under Constantine, and that gave rise to the papacy. And in the east, the Greek Orthodox Church is founded upon the rejection of the papacy. And again, these are the legs in the dream statue. And what a vivid prophecy, like I said. And it has to be 100% true, or none of it's true. So this is important. Rome fell in 476 AD, and that was followed by the Dark Ages. Well, beginning in 800 AD, and this is where a lot of history seems to just stop, the era of the Holy Roman Emperors began. The first of them was Charlemagne, and he's the one that today's Europeans seem to be a little skittish about. Charlemagne was anointed emperor by Pope Leo III. He was the king of the Franks, or Western Germany, or more accurately, today's Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, the site of the first modern EU common market. It's the very spot of Charlemagne's Holy Roman Kingdom, Benelux. Now, the Holy Roman Empire was German. A lot of people don't know that. The Pope always crowned the Holy Roman Emperor, and so we see here the strong connection between Germany and Rome, Germany and the state church, Germany and that city on seven hills. Well, the final Holy Roman Emperor left the building, so to speak, in 1806, and this incarnation of Europe uh, became weakened when Napoleon marched into Berlin. But this time in history, from uh, 800 to 1800, was also called, and this is important, the First Reich. Reich means empire. Now let's move on to Prussia. Not Russia, but Prussia with a P. Where for the first time in history, the name the Iron Kingdom is recorded to describe any kingdom ever. Again... Those legs in the statue are iron. So where or what was Prussia? This is where it gets very interesting for prophecy students. Back in the 1700s, Prussia began to arise on the scene. There was no Germany then, okay? It encompassed the city of Berlin and many German principalities, each with their own prince. Now, a main symbol of this empire was the Iron Cross. And you can Google that if you want to see what it looked like. I know it'll look familiar to a lot of you. It was made famous, this cross, by Prussian King Frederick III, who fought Napoleon. It was given as a military award beginning around 1813, and Hitler used it freely with a swastika in the center. Today, it is the standard emblem of the German armed forces, and I find this combination of iron and religious symbolism very interesting. I mean, biblical symbolism is important because Prophecy is loaded with it. A lot of people say, I can't read or understand Revelation. There's too much symbolism. Well, remember, the Bible interprets itself. And when we look back like this, we see an awful lot of things that start to, to connect in our minds. So um, 
maybe the symbolism is to send a message into the future. And I'm going to say that now. And then as I go, you're going to maybe see that that's a possibility. But you, again, you decide. Enter on the scene now at this point, Otto von Bismarck. In 1871, he brought all of these Prussian principalities into a new nation called Germany. Otto was called, of course, the Iron Chancellor. He chose Kaiser Wilhelm, Kaiser, Caesar, Tsar, all the same word. You know, the guy with the pointy helmet, I'm sure you've seen him in history, to rule his empire. So Otto von Bismarck chose Kaiser Wilhelm to rule. And this German empire was called the Second Reich. Von Bismarck is known in history for a famous speech entitled Blood and Iron. Now let's move to the 20th century. We may have thought that we had seen the last of the Kaisers and Caesars and Tsars following World War I, and I touched on this in the last, uh, last week's June 1st podcast. But in 1933, Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, and this is important. He believed that he was reestablishing the Holy Roman Empire out of Berlin and that he was the new Charlemagne, and you can see why Europe is skittish about Charlemagne, and that he was establishing what was known as the Third Reich. So now we know there was a first and a second Reich. And that is is kind of, um, you know, history tells us how that ended. In other words, the Third Reich, we know how it ended. End of story, right? Well, maybe not. A classified report shows that the Nazis also knew by 1944 that their dream of a Holy Roman Empire was vanishing before their very eyes. But they had a plan B. When Hitler was in power, he surrounded himself with the best and the wealthiest industrialists, chemists, and pharmaceutical experts of the day. World War I was called the Chemist's War because of something called mustard gas. And World War II really could not have happened the way it did without chemicals such as the Zyklon B gas used against the Jews, manufactured by Bayer, part of a massive chemical cartel called IG Farben, the largest chemical manufacturer in the world and virtually owned by Hitler. In fact, he used the chemical cartels of the day and companies like IBM, Standard Oil, Krupp, and Bayer, and many, many others, hundreds, to build the Third Reich into an enormous, brutal killing machine. But the world is very forgiving, at least they were at the time, in, all that, the, in, um, in that all the well-known corporations who were in bed with the Nazis certainly have not suffered over time, right? But they've grown remarkably. They're still producing pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, and many dyes and chemical compounds that we take for granted, and it's become just a monstrous, monstrous industry. This declassified report is called the Maison Rouge, or Red House Report, and it details how Nazi officials prepared to send on to the future a blueprint for a Fourth Reich. The Red House Report details the covert agreement between Nazi industrialists and bankers who would avoid justice after the war with massive amounts of capital and gold plundered from Europe and the Jews, of course, allowing them to set up multinational front companies overseas. The idea they had to rev- was to revive a powerful European empire, set up economic union in Europe, eventually erode the EU nation's national sovereignty, hmm, and then realize political union through a powerful dictatorship. Now, I need to state that I don't want to give the impression that the Nazis set up the modern EU. It really sounds like a classic conspiracy theory. It's unprovable as they usually are. I have yet to find any proof of that. But regardless of that, here's what I do know. The devil is certainly in the details. 
And secondly, Germany has the largest economy in Europe and the fourth largest in the world. Even the magazine The Economist admitted as recently as 2020 that Germany pretty much runs the EU and the European Central Bank is in Germany. Well, today's Europe has grown and morphed over the years, but not through wars and conquests as in what you call the days of yore, but through multiple layers of treaties, event, uh, effectively building a potential empire, one treaty at a time. That's why you never hear about it. Uh, and these treaties outline policy and procedure for everything from borders, freedom of movement to a constitution to a currency, which would be the euro, and has actually provided for a place card for a future powerful president of Europe. Let's just look at one treaty. This is so fascinating. The Treaty of Lisbon, Lisbon, 2007. That treaty establishes a legally new European Union in the constitutional form of a European state. Okay, so by amending two previous treaties, nothing new people, nothing to see here, just keep walking. The Treaty on European Union from 1992 and the Treaty of Rome from 1957 and tucking a constitution in between the lines just like that, there's an official EU constitution and a super state. It also means, and this is this is key, from that point on, Europe became an entirely new political entity on the world scene, never before seen in that form. What do I mean by that? A European community of nations becomes a union. That union supersedes the authority of the individual nations. Federal EU law is separate from and superior to its member states. So it establishes a state that can now conduct itself as any other state in the international community. Before Lisbon, Europe is not a legal entity in the world. Why do we care about that? Well, since the EU had never been a legal state up until then, no individual, no individual could be a member of it. But Lisbon transformed the meaning of citizenship by giving the inhabitants of the EU a citizenship that's superior to their own national citizenship. And so this effectively ends the nation state as it has been known in Europe. The Roman Empire invented the nation state. Lisbon ends it, on paper at least. And this was something that was reportedly one of the goals stated in that Red House report. But think about it. A new powerful state can be created on paper, virtually overnight, without a single shot being fired, simply through the will of some, I would say, obviously very powerful political leaders. An amazing chapter of world history has unfolded in the last century mostly, as prophesied in Daniel, and most people did not even notice and no one talked about it. Finally, <clears throat> Lisbon creates the office of a European president. Now, I don't know of any movement in this area yet. Um, this is just my personal thing. He probably won't be chosen in an election, but rather it will be a brokered elite position. Uh, but beyond that, I know nothing. And this is also very interesting because Europe would now be an international power. They could legally sign treaties with other nations. In, uh, in order for a European leader to sign a treaty with Israel— uh, as the Bible indicates, and or any other number of nations, the Lisbon Treaty or something like it has to be legally in place in order for that to be binding. So here's a freebie for you today. The Bible indicates that such a treaty is coming and will signal the start of the tribulation period. So are we seeing in these European treaties another of the finer details of prophecy coming to light that only our generation could see? Uh, look at all the things that have to go on behind the scenes uh, politically and economically, actually, in order to get to this point. It's it's so much more complicated than we think. We also know then, uh, of course, that God is very much in the details. Speaking of which, back in 1991, 
little personal story here. I found myself rummaging through old magazines at the local public library. And for prophecy students in 91, there was no internet. You know, so digging around for any information of interest to prophecy was one literal physical page at a time. And it meant understanding card catalogs and microfilm. And yeah, that definitely dates me. But an issue of Time magazine in 91 was reporting on the upcoming Maastricht Treaty, uh, which would allow for a common EU currency. And it was depicted on the front of Time magazine as a woman riding a beast, which, of course, prophecy students know as the mythic symbolism from Revelation 17 about judgment of this false religious system and the woman being a city that sits on seven hills. If you haven't read Revelation 17, it's an astounding vision. And it says in verse 6 that John marveled with great amazement. Coins, and I marveled with great amazement when I saw that Time magazine cover. I I remember it just dropped my jaw. Coins and postage stamps also adopted this symbolism, and I actually own an old early euro with this depiction of a woman riding a beast. So why is Europe displaying these symbols? Why make it their logo? Uh, You know, when a company or organization designs a logo and they display it on correspondence or whatever, we presume that they do so with the idea that this best represents them and what they do. So we kind of have to presume the same about the EU adopting this apocalyptic imagery, in this case Europa, a woman riding on the back of Zeus, the mythological creature depicted as a bull. Europe was named for Europa, if I can state the obvious there. Is there some script that's being followed as if to send a message to all of us that, yes, we are in those times? That's the only conclusion I can come to. Maybe you have something else in mind. But another interesting sidelight in this mythological story is that the god Zeus represented some interesting spiritual concepts. Zeus was called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, an angel of light, and the god of world government who supposedly is endowed with divine uh, qualities. Uh, It's not difficult to come up with an analogy then of the god of this world taking captive and seducing mortal humans to do his bidding. That's just one or maybe a picture of this final world power riding on the back of the god of world dominion. It's also said that Europa was the daughter of King Tyre. Okay, Tyre was the Phoenician capital of world trade in the ancient world, and they specialized in a much sought-after crimson dye that was used for clothing. And the Bible tells us the woman on the beast in Revelation 17, is wearing purple and scarlet clothing. And remember, too, that the Fourth Reich, if it follows the pattern of the Holy Roman Emperors that we talked about, would be a combination of political and religious rule, just like we find in Revelation 17. So when we're done, or sometime in the future, go and read Revelation 17 and see what you think about all these things, because I think a cursory reading of it doesn't give you a lot of historical conclusions. But these very details are why I do believe that the final world leader will come out of a revived Iron Kingdom, Roman Empire, centered in Europe. I don't really see a case for anything else. So, you know, all that's left of those ten toes, all right? And then the world runs out of time and real estate. So again, where are we at? Well, we're not in the days of those kings. Um, We're not in the days of the toes, probably the days of the kings, but we don't know who those 10 kings are. So there's too much that we don't know yet. But Daniel does give some very interesting details on those toes. And you can read that for yourself uh, in Daniel 2. But let's jump to the last part because I like to see how it ends. Verse 44, Daniel 2. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Amen is all I can add to that. That's just uh, great news. And it also tells us, again, like we're, we're pretty low on time when you combine this prophecy in Daniel with all the other 100-pound hints about how late the hour is. So whether or not the modern state of Europe is an actual Fourth Reich, you know, that should not be your takeaway today. People love to label times and seasons and make it sound like an agenda or a significant production is going on. You know, we have Agenda 21, Agenda 30, the Great Reset. Everything has a name. And I believe that's to tell people what's coming, to see if they will get on board uh, and identify with the plans of those who sit in first class while the rest of us pretty much ride along in economy, right? So another thing I hear about pretty regularly, weekly, is something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. I want to explore what the globalists mean about yet another event or season of time. What is that and why should we care? Well, there are four named industrial revolutions. The first industrial revolution began in 1784 with the invention of the mechanical loom. And this is uh, called the age of mechanization because of water power and steam power Uh, In my hometown here, we have a house that was the first in the U.S. to be lit by incandescent lighting from hydroelectric power from a river that runs behind it. And it still stands as a monument to the segment of time between those first two industrial ages. And it's a beautiful historic home, uh, and it's really the pride of our hometown, but uh, everything was powered by water. The second, or Industry 2.0, began in 1870, the age of electrification, with the advent of assembly lines based on electricity, a lot of human labor, working around the clock to make it work. Science also became predominant in the area of inventions at this time. The third industrial revolution began in 1969. Computing, electronics took center stage. There was a big gap between two and three, right? So we are in an accelerated age, obviously. The fourth industrial age is referred to as cyber-physical, Uh, Because it merges the physical, the digital, and virtual technologies. So we have the steam age, the electrical age, the computing age, and the intelligence age. The fourth age, uh, called 4IR, was named after none other than Klaus Schwab. Uh, He wrote a book by the same name, and he tells us that this new exponentially complex world is going to change everything about our lives. It's going to be a total transformation. I actually believe him, and we're going to... Uh, see a lot of that uh, the rest of this morning. In his article entitled, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, What It Means and How to Respond, he says this, the possibility of billions of people connected to mobile devices with unprecedented processing power, storage capacity, access to knowledge are unlimited, and these possibilities will be multiplied by emerging technology breakthroughs in fields such as AI, robotics, the Internet of Things. What in the world is that? Autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotechnology, biotechnology, material science, energy storage, and quantum computing, end of quote. This is what Klaus Schwab really spends all his time pondering and working towards. Uh, You know, there have been so many articles of late reporting on AI, chat GPT, will robots turn on us? How can we possibly survive as a species that I think all this exponential knowledge is possibly about to catch up with us, and not in a good way. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk about one of the things that I just mentioned in Schwab's list, uh, the Internet of Things, uh, or IoT. It's very interesting. I first heard about it back in 2007 or so. 
Um, and it actually claimed to connect every device on Earth uh, in in real time. I mean, it's just a mind-boggling technology uh, that that should be so. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to connect everything in the world uh, and have it up on the Internet? The Bible does predict the, the digital human connection in Revelation 13, which is really kind of disturbing enough. But what is the purpose of the Internet of Things? And what follows that? When I started looking at it in uh, 07, I didn't realize it was coming up so close in the rearview mirror. But when you, if you're going to put a chip in every single thing, manufactured item, or whatever it is you use, whatever it is you buy, whatever it is you consume, think this through. We're looking at surveillance simply based on parts in your car or your clothing or your television. We almost don't even need AI when you think about the, this unbelievable plan. The Internet is so much bigger than everything that we access day after day after day. I think, you know, it has grown so incredibly over the years. And so we feel that we are accessing the sum of human knowledge, and in a way we are. But there's also another segment of the Internet that is going to be used for something completely different. And it does include the Internet of Things, which I thought was going to be way out a ways, when in reality, uh, by 2008, it was actually going on already. So, you know, what follows that? I've got some questions about that, some answers about that. And the next thing, which really probably isn't anything we're going to like. Um, So, Stand Up For The Truth, my name is Mary Danielson. We're connecting some dots today and learning about some technologies and all kinds of things. So uh, stay with me. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For Truth, Stand Up For The Truth for June the 9th. We're so glad you're with us today. Um, did some historical dot connecting in the first half, and I ended up talking about something called the Internet of Things that I think just sort of developed under the radar, and no one really knows what that is or what happened or how it happened or who did it. We're going to talk about that a little bit because um, it's it's here. It's done. It's been here for many years now. So how many centuries did people live without electricity and mass transportation and mass communication? Well, it's a simple answer, all of them, until that last one, you know, the one with all the wars and all the blood and stuff. Uh, Doesn't the Bible say in the last days knowledge will increase? Well, yes, it does, and it's one of the major signs of the end times, probably the easiest to prove, as if the Bible needs proving by the likes of you and me. But when we're sharing with people about these things, Hopefully we can connect with people I often have over things like technology and knowledge increasing. And did you know that the Bible says that it's going to exponentially increase? That's a mathematical term. Um, So here we are. And on this end of so many gadgets, inventions, bells and whistles, noise and insanity. And sometimes I wonder if this increase in knowledge is the one that's going to drive us all mad in the end. But way back in 1875, Uh, A gentleman named Herman Hollerith was studying engineering at Columbia University. And upon his graduation, he took a job uh, with the U.S. Census Bureau in 1888. 
<clears throat> At that time, America was growing rapidly, and the government felt that for the next census, um, there was a great need for someone to come up with a solution to analyzing the large amounts of data that the U.S. wanted to collect on its growing population. So collecting data on Americans is not exactly a new thing. But they realized that with all the new immigrants coming in, it could easily take longer to count everyone by hand than that actual 10-year census, 10 years between, cens- between each census. So they held a contest to see what the bright minds of the day could come up with. While Herman was a professor then at MIT in 1882, he began experimenting with what we call a punch card type of system for analyzing data. The cards were known as Hollerith cards. And if you're older, you may even remember these. When fed into a a card-reading machine, they could tabulate and record such data as your name, the number of your children, your address, the country of your origin, etc. It's very basic info, but I think these were used well into the 70s, if I recall my office classes correctly in high school. And I think those little standardized tests we took when we were kids, remember you had your number two pencil and we had to take standardized tests every fall to see, and they could measure what was going on in our little brains, you had to fill in um, just the circle. You, know, you didn't write any answers. You filled in the circle with the pencil. And that's the same general idea. Well, they were used in the 1890 census, which only took a year to complete. And that was an amazing feat for the time. Uh, they were used at Ellis Island to record information on each immigrant as well. And uh, so that greatly sped up the process of blending eight million new citizens into the American landscape. So his cards and calculating machines became the foundation for the Computer Tabulating and Recording Company in 1911, renamed International Business Machines, or IBM, in 1924. So they've been around a long time. They're still going strong. Hollerith is regarded then as the father of modern automatic computation and many decades later, we have computer chips in wristwatches that are more powerful than the ones that sent men to the moon. I admit that's always baffled me just a little bit, uh, probably because we're so accustomed to thinking that we need computers for every little thing, every big thing. And sending men into orbit is probably one of the more difficult things to accomplish on any given day. Of course, there's always been mathematics. But now, with a company like IBM, part of corporate America, never mind that they use this technology to round up the Jews and place them in concentration camps, that's largely been forgotten in the digital age. But IBM, no, they would never use such tech in 2023 to try it out on a new population, would they? No, of course not. Well, Kevin Ashton was working for Procter & Gamble in Europe in 1997. He was marketing things like oil of Olay. Uh, and their new line of lipstick. And he found the marketing part was pretty easy because people already knew Procter & Gamble. I think we've all grown up with Procter & Gamble and all the weird rumors about them. Um, But he soon found that the problem of keeping a really popular shade of lipstick on the shelf brought a completely different challenge. It's all about the lipstick. His research for a method of supply line tracking took him into the world of RFID or radio frequency identification. RFID uh, was already being used for things like cashless highway toll collection, remote starters for cars, but it wasn't being applied in the vast world of buying and selling. So the marriage of the computer with radio waves was about to become a reality. And RFID is still with us. It's not outdated technology, as you might think it is, because we're always moving forward, right? So you figure everything becomes obsolete. That's really not true. 
because these RFID tags are very affordable and they're very reliable sensors. My passport has an RFID chip. It's supposed to last 10 years. Actually, my passport probably knows, or that chip knows more about where my passport is located than I do. I have no idea where it is. RFID tags are made up of a tiny microchip <clears throat> excuse me, and a flat coiled antenna. And then a special reader is used to send radio waves to the tag and the chip beams back information that was programmed into it. Now, everyone is familiar by now with the barcode ID system. I remember when those things started showing up on everything in sight. And before 1980, do we remember a world that didn't have a barcode? on? Well, yeah, there, there were never barcodes on things when I was a kid. But it appears that radio frequency tags are poised to take over and also take buying and selling to a whole new level. Here's the application part of that technology. You put these RFID chips into every single item bought and sold in the world. Oh, my goodness. Think about that for a second. All the goods manufactured and sold in the world and the task of identifying them with a chip. First, you're saying why, but that alone on that level is mind-boggling. But take it even further. The chips would be in not just a product, all right, but the nails, the beads, the wires, the fibers, huh, even painted pictures or words, even as small as the period as at the end of a sentence. Now, this gives a whole new and frightening meaning to surveillance, and it brings up some, well, obviously serious privacy issues. Could our Bibles one day be chipped unbeknownst to ourselves? And so our guy Kevin from Procter & Gamble came up with something called the Internet of Things. He actually named it that. So that the internet, again, which is far more vast than what we use it for in any given day, can keep track of every single item humans use from the time it's manufactured to the time that it expires. And that's kind of their excuse. Well, it's supply line stuff. We need to keep track of everything um, so that when it's off, when it's off the world scene, you know, it's manufactured, it's used, it's used up, it's off the scene, and we need to know that. Okay. RFID chips can be put in your shoes, your jeans, your tires, your meds, your work uniform, any of your groceries can be completely undetectable until a reader activates it. And this is exactly what influential people in retail envision for our future. Um, these very same chips can also be implanted into humans, put in tattoo ink, in case you need a mark on your hand or forehead. I don't intend to be here for that, but this this is a use for RFID. Smart dust, they can sprinkle smart dust in your workplace. They can sprinkle it in a city anywhere they want, and all of a sudden there's tracking going on. And again, this has been going on since uh, 2009 or so. But items being trucked around the country then, they can be tracked. These chips can have temperature controls. You know, if there's a refrigerated items, it can say, nope, that stuff's spoiled because it went past a certain temperature. Weather alerts don't go into this city. You know, there's a hurricane going on. And there's just no what, there's just no end to what they can do for every imaginable product and industry. They're also in smart appliances. I have a doorbell camera. It's connected to the internet. That's also the internet of things. Anything you can use an app for. And so more and more things that we own, things that are in our home, they are in an app and the Internet of Things. Now, this is where it gets kind of creepy for me. And <clears throat> Creepy is a relative term at this point in time, right? Now, inanimate objects have the ability to communicate with manufacturers, retailers, or each other. So these items can talk to each other. Of course, we live in the age of AI where devices are starting to understand the physical world around them. That's a whole other level. 
and thinking independently. So the Internet of Things, then using AI and RFID, they can run without human input. <clears throat> so the world is just, you know, flip a switch and, and it goes. A Bible with a chip in it would tell the computer that the Bible was in the room. With whom? Or that a can of Coke was in the room, or any one of thousands of other items. Again, more information than I think anyone ever needs to have, but others don't agree with that. With RFID, each tagged item could have a unique identifying number not shared with items similar to itself. Okay, now we got to think big numbers. This sensor technology has a unique numbering system that is so vast it could number every item produced on Earth for the next thousand years with no repeats. So after quite a bit of research, they came up with a 96-bit code for numbering. Technically, that is 2 to the 96th power. And let's put it this way. It's enough to number 80,000 trillion trillion objects. Now, it would only take a 33-bit system to number 6 billion humans. So this system is more than adequate to take global finance, trafficking in humans, and stuff to a whole new level. So the Internet of Things is a network of physical objects that are embedded with sensors, software, and tags for the purpose of connecting and exchanging data with other devices and systems over the Internet. And like I said, they talk to each other. It is really difficult. As much as I love technology and know about technology, it is difficult to wrap my head around, again, the need for this and how it actually works. But by 2025, this isn't going anywhere, experts predict that 20 billion everyday objects will be connected this way. Um, When they first started, it was just these EPC uh, codes and a sticker. And I remember going to Sam's Club back in around, I don't know, 09 or 2010, and seeing these EPC codes on everything. And so there were RFID codes on your uh, electronics way uh, at the beginning. And your clothing, you go to, go to say, Kohl's, there's a tag there, and it has an RFID chip in it. So uh, they said at the beginning, no, they, we take that out before you take it home. Well, <clears throat> I'm not so sure about that. MIT tells us that each individual tagged item has its own web page with the history of the item's existence. Um, instead of domain names, it will be the name of an object. I mean, how big is the Internet, actually? So there's no limit to the amount of info that can be stored this way. So what started out as a quiet research project at MIT in 1999 has exploded into a global corporate endeavor. Um, it's a new global standard for item identification, and they've passed control of these chips over to the Uniform Code Council, the company that manages the entire barcode system. So it's bigger than all of us for sure. Let me add one more tech on top of that. I've just been hearing about this recently. It's called the Internet of Bodies. (laughs) I thought the Internet of Things was disturbing. One article here says, um, How human are you? The Internet of Bodies is here, but are we ready? Well, we haven't even settled on what a woman is, and we're supposed to, you know, ask or answer how human we are. So now we have the Internet of Bodies. And, of course, the implications of what you're thinking is that now your body is on the Internet of Things because it's a subsidiary of the Internet of Things or a subset. And I'll try and keep this simple of some of these headlines because uh, there's a lot of technobabble if you're first looking into this. But it says the IOB, Internet of Bodies, describes a subset of IoT, Internet of Things, devices 
that interact more intimately with the human body. They connect the body to an online network through technology that you can wear, ingest, implant, or otherwise link to a human body. They fall into three categories. And so I just, I read those categories. So uh, external devices, these are things you wear. So maybe you have a smartwatch or something like that. They collect and transmit data using external sensors like smartwatches. Uh, Internal devices, internal devices, these are devices you can ingest or have implanted to control and monitor various aspects of your health, such as digital pills, smart pacemakers, and then embedded devices. These are devices that completely merge with your body while maintaining a real-time connection to a remote machine, such as a BCI, or brain-computer interface. It says external and internal devices are already commonplace, but embedded devices are the next frontier, with Elon Musk proclaiming at the latest Neuralink show-and-tell. And we talked about that last week. Uh, the FDA has given permission to experiment with these things. So BCIs, brain-computer interfaces, are the most talked embedded device to date. Um, they offer the first real step towards uniting humans and AI. Their functionality extends far beyond the health stats you'll be familiar with on your watch. They have the potential not only to track our data and provide assistance support, but to enhance our body's functions. Oh, okay, so you will be healthier. You will be a better and more productive human being. AI BCIs could unlock cures to health conditions that have uh, phased scientists for decades including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and we are quickly seeing companies line up to deliver. And it talks about Syncron. That's an Australian-based neurotech company. Um, They were the first to gain FDA approval. I had not heard about them. And they have already successfully enabled paralyzed patients to send emails and text messages. And then there's Neuralink, and that's the California-based company of Elon Musk. And it goes on to say, for those currently suffering from severe health conditions, BCIs can't come soon enough, but such technological leaps are not generally characterized by sunshine and rainbows. I will add unicorns. Um, And if the Borg and Star Trek are anything to go by, it's worth considering the potential downgrades and how we can mitigate them. And there is a price for this progress. And they, they are talking about this, at least early on they're talking about it. That That may be shut down once these things become just norm. It talks about criminal liability. What if a person commits a criminal act under the influence of an implanted microchip? Who will be responsible? Was the person in control? Employment, will they be available only to those who can afford it, leading to a world characterized by neurotechnological discrimination where employees with implants will be paid more, resulting from their ability to download more skills Oh, man, this is way above my pay grade in life, i got to tell you. Or will we have no choice in the matter? And wearing a BCI will be a condition of employment. Okay, now we're bumping up against Revelation 13, right? Also, it warns on data protection. How can the user control what data leaves their BCI? If consent is relied upon, will it be valid? What will that data be used for? How do we ensure it's kept secure? To, uh, to date, hacking has only been thought of in a traditional computer context, but what about your brain? So some companies are are attempting legislation. I mean, you really have to be on top of this stuff to even write up legislation to protect your mental privacy, your free will. Oh, my goodness. Equal access to cognitive enhancement technologies. 
Oh, my goodness. France approved a bioethics law that protects the right to mental integrity. How did we get here? Spain adopted a digital rights charter with a section uh, dedicated to neural rights. The Italian Data Protection Authority commenced discussion on whether mental privacy is sufficiently covered under the country's privacy rights. Um, it's exciting. It is absolutely terrifying. I'm sorry. But um, benefits? I don't know. I don't know. I'm calling it now the Internet of Behavior, right? Because with your free will and all that comes your behavior. Um, there are some benefits um, they're saying, uh, including better diagnosis and treatment of health conditions, personalized insurance, plans, increased productivity, increased public health safety. But again, substantial concerns. Are we ready to use it? We're not even ready. We're not prepared in any way to use something like that. Um, in this one article says, considering the uncertainty and scary growth of the Internet, sharing information about our bodies can be stupid. <laughs> and it's, you know, here's one just quick story on here. The Internet of Bodies will change everything for better or worse. And this is a personal story of someone who had a smart pacemaker, right? It says, the rise of devices that connect the human body to the web is accelerating rapidly. The Internet of Bodies could revolutionize healthcare and improve our quality of life. Yes. Here's a story. Ross Compton was there when a fire ravaged his $400,000 home in Middleton, Ohio, in September of 2016. Fortunately, Compton told investigators he was able to stuff a few bags with several possessions, including the charger for an external heart pump he needed to survive, before shattering a window with his cane and escaping. But as the smoke cleared, police began to suspect that Compton's story was a fabrication. His statements were inconsistent. The rubble smelled of gasoline. <laughs> That's a problem. And it seemed implausible that someone fleeing a burning house, especially someone with a medical condition like Compton's, could execute such a complex escape plan. Eventually, investigators were able to indict him on felony charges of aggravated arson and insurance fraud. Their star witness, his pacemaker. Police obtained a warrant to retrieve data on Compton's heart activity before, during, and after the fire. After reviewing this information, a cardiologist concluded it was highly improbable he would have been able to escape the flames so quickly while lugging so many belongings. He pleaded not guilty. His attorney argued that the pacemaker data should be thrown out, including that it would violate doctor-patient privilege and Compton's constitutional right to privacy, the lawyer said. The case was strange, arguably sad, and fraught with difficult questions. Regardless of whether Compton really torched his house, should a life-saving device inside someone's body be part of a case that might put them behind bars? And we may not know the answer for some time because he did pass away in July at the age of 62. And leaving his case and whatever precedent it might have set unresolved. This may seem like a one-of-a-kind chain of events or an aberration, but as industries usher in a new era of devices that track personal information by leveraging the Internet and the human body in equal measure, it won't be the last. We have been warned, right? I mean, so many things here that I don't want an implant, number one, and I don't want a, a web page about it, and I'm sure that you don't either. You know, <laughs> there's always hope, right? We, we get into these things and we get into them deeply and I do it so that you will have a greater understanding of the world around you. But we still want to focus on hope. Several years ago, well, a couple years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Home Before Dark. And 
the whole idea was that we would be home before it got too dark. And things in there to encourage you and just to read brief segments uh, each day that would put your eyes in the right place so that stuff like this doesn't bring us down or cause us to fear. Because the last thing we want, the last thing I want is for anyone to fear. And here's why I wrote the book. My parents' generation was referred to as the greatest generation. And this is due to some wonderful qualities that they possessed, a combination of an unparalleled work ethic, the maturity to do the right thing at the right time, a soberness about responsibility and resulting good choices that helped them to successfully raise a crazy bunch of people called baby boomers. And boomers have ruled the culture for about 50 years now, but they're getting older. Um, and these our parents were adults, and that's what every child needs most in their formative years and what the world desperately needs in leadership. They were far from perfect. Um, things such as feminism and abortion sprung up on their watch. But there was an unspoken decency about the times that guided people in their day-to-day lives, and it glued our culture together. But today it's all unraveling. We're careening like a freight train towards the culmination of all things. If you ask a good sampling of us today, if we had a sound upbringing and a pleasant childhood full of opportunity and options, many of us would say yes without hesitation. And I was one of those. I had a great childhood, sometimes painful, sometimes scary, sometimes exciting. I was educated by nuns. And so all three of those things did apply randomly during my school years. It was terrifying at times, but we survived. My parents were not saved, but they represented the law in my life. And I sure as day knew I was a sinner because we were disciplined when we did something wrong. Our feelings were not coddled. Uh, Self-esteem was a foolish notion. Everybody knew that. Home was where they kept you real. And I had two older brothers whose sole objective in life was to vex me on a daily basis. But all in all, we had the best music, the best outlook, and we're left with the best memories of the age of innocence. Uh, all that that had to offer. We also revere the memories of our parents who laid the groundwork for so many of our freedoms and bottomless wells of creativity, right? As witnessed, for example, in incredible songwriting abilities of a bunch of youthful musicians whose music endures. It's the soundtrack of our lives. Sometimes that depth of creativity didn't make the generational cut, I guess. That's my editorial for the moment. But for the most part, nearly all media that uh, has tanked, you know, movies, everything has tanked from a creative and a moral perspective because I think humans eventually ruin everything that they touch. But one of the great things we enjoyed was immense mobile phone-free lives. Our parents had no idea where we were in the summer months. Uh, They didn't fret about it. We did all kinds of crazy, stupid learning curve stuff. They probably should have cut many lives short, right? And in school-free seasons, we left the house at 7 a.m. We wandered home for supper Uh, eating without really chewing because the day was still going. And it was followed by a warm golden evening, uh, finding our friends and a few more hours of what we called horsing around. But when the dust settled down hard, we knew it was time to go home. The lights and TV were always glowing. Uh, A favorite musician of mine says, we were catching the day's last slow goodbye. And there was one rule, be home before dark. Everybody be home before dark. And that is my prayer for you too. Thank you for your ongoing prayers, sharing our podcast, and of course, financial support of our ministry. David's on vacation, so we'll have special guests too. Um, Tuesday, Jim Fletcher. Wednesday, uh, uh, Bill Federer. Thursday, Elijah Abraham. Friday, Don Stewart. Please support the ministry. My name is Mary Danielson. Keep speaking the truth about things that matter. 